It's a delight that we have to morning, this morning to come together as we are in the warm and friendly confines of a place such as this one and allow ourselves by the grace of God to open his word and to be encouraged and to lead in the ways most holy, most godly, and that which will lead to the beauty of life everlasting. As we've already noted in our prayer and so, so beautifully stated, the joy that we feel to be able to come together here and for the privilege it's ours and freedom and liberty to do that. As we study, you might have already noted in the bulletin as well as in the wall to my left, we'll continue a series of studies and lessons dealing with the subject of the Holy Spirit this morning. That particular subject has been one rife with controversy and also much uncertainty through the years. And in fact, in that discussion last Lord's Day as we began that series, we began to identify in the most basic fashion some of the wonderful and marvelous truths revealed in the Word of God on the exalted subject of the Holy Spirit. When you and I discuss the Spirit, isn't it still the case that there is much uncertainty generally in the religious world about the Holy Spirit, about the nature of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the activities on a daily basis that one is able to appreciate by virtue of the Holy Spirit? In fact, to briefly review some of the high points of that lesson last Lord's Day, we came to appreciate that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. It is not proper to think of the Holy Spirit as an influence, a force, a feeling, an emotion. He is a divine person, forming one of the members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in that way, He should be exalted and magnified highly, appreciative of the things revealed of Him and by Him in the Holy Scriptures, in the sense that that conclusion was reached. We noticed how incumbent it is upon us to understand the vitality of His work and the role that He can play and ought to play in the life of those dedicated to the cause of Christianity. Furthermore, we came to see that the Holy Spirit is frequently mentioned in the Scriptures. Not merely a time or two, but literally hundreds and hundreds of times reference is made, and it shall be our goal today to open that same Word of God and to allow the message of His work to touch our life. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? What does He do? What is the character of that work, and in what way is it carried out? It would be my hope today that as we use the Scriptures to guide us in that thinking, that we'll come to a better understanding of two of the facets of the work of the Holy Spirit. As I began to think about a way to put the lesson together in the most meaningful fashion, I decided to do it in two overarching ways. First, rather than to look at these specific verses and just one after another list the types of works in which the Holy Spirit engages, I thought it perhaps a bit more profitable to look at two grand things and then look at the various other matters in quick passing that would fall beneath those major headings. And so we shall look first of all at the work of the Holy Spirit in creation. In fact, that's the title I've given to this next slide. The Holy Spirit's work in creation. First of all, we'll look at the physical creation, things of a material nature, things of a physical character, and ask about the work of the Holy Spirit in regard to its creation. And then in a secondary fashion, we will ask a similar set of questions about spiritual things and the Holy Spirit's role in spiritual creation. First of all, the physical aspect. It would seem interestingly important 
to notice from the very first chapter in all of the book of God, Genesis chapter 1, and to revisit the role that the Holy Spirit played in the aspect of creation itself. In the very first verse in all of the sacred text, we read, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In the very outset of creation, we find that the earth and the heaven were fashioned and made. But might we not lose sight of the fact the earth was without form? The Hebrew word means it was formless. It was empty. And then also it was void. Meaning it was bereft. It did not have the characteristics incumbent upon a universe and earth fitted for habitation. Later we read in Isaiah 45, 18 that God made earth to be inhabited. In that earliest record of Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the earth, though created, did not yet have the characteristic of being inhabitable. Thus, we notice the very last sentence of Genesis 1, verse 2. And the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. In that state of formlessness and in that state of emptiness, the Spirit of God moved. The actual Hebrew word means brooded over or resided over or oversaw. There was something the Spirit of God was about to do. Though it was formless at that moment, the activity of the Spirit would be critical and crucial in turning it into that beautiful, habitable place we appreciate today. In fact, in the verses that follow, we remember that organization began to take place. God fashioned light, and then the firmament, and then the seas were gathered together, dry land appeared, and plant life appeared on day three. Day four, the heavenly bodies came into being. That included the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day number five, life in the seas as well as life in the atmosphere, birds and fishes and whales and other things. Day number six, land-dwelling animals, and ultimately, the human family, man himself. Notice the organization. It proceeded from a state of emptiness and formlessness to a state of high organization. The Holy Spirit was instrumental in bringing that about. One of the first things we can appreciate is then the role of the Spirit in creation was not to bring things into being from the outset, but was to organize what had already been fashioned. Organization. But that isn't all. In Psalm 104, verse number 30, the text that was read earlier this morning, we came to see a bit about the nature of the creative aspect of the Spirit, even as it relates to life itself. Might we pay a bit more attention just in passing to some of that way of thinking? And let's notice a few verses that also relate to it. In Job 26, 13, Speaking about those heavens again, even Job, that great patriarch of us, uttered these statements, By thy spirit the heavens were garnished, or hath been garnished. That word garnished is a very tender word, identifying the aspect of beautification. The spirit was involved in, in some way in making the marvelous heavens as beautiful as they appear to you and me on a clear evening and on a glorious night. That aspect of the Spirit so far has lifted high then the capability and the involvement of His organizational skills as well as His skills of beautifying. That is to lifting to the 
present case of aesthetic pleasingness? That's an interesting thing to say about the Holy Spirit, isn't it? And you and I might be too often forgetful of that role that He played in the initial creation. Though we hinted at it earlier, let's in fact pay a bit more attention to the creation of man himself. What about human beings like Adam, the first man, and like you and me today? Does the Holy Spirit play a role in Adam's creation, or did he then? And does he maintain a role in the creation of individuals today when they are, say, born in, in, in their mother's womb? That kind of question perhaps is answered when we first revisit Genesis 1.26. On that sixth day of God's creative activity, wasn't it there said, let us make man in our image? When that statement was made, obviously the Holy Spirit was one of the listeners to that matter, and hence it should be anticipated that the Holy Spirit did have some role in the original creation of man himself. That creative role perhaps emphasized in Job 33.4. Later again, Job would declare and say, as he spoke about the character of and the beauty of the life that he enjoyed, notice he attributed it to the Holy Spirit. That God's Spirit was active and was the responding agent that made possible His life. As He made reference to that life itself in that text, He also would refer to it later in Job 27.3, that the Holy Spirit had a role in the sustaining of His life. All the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God has given me life. The Spirit of God, yes indeed, the Holy Spirit. The beauty then of the Holy Spirit's role in the creation of the physical things of the universe, in the re relation of the creation of life itself, in the beautification of that creation, as well as in the sustenance of it, all could be said to give us a clearer picture of the Spirit's role in physical creation. I would submit to you that that seems to only beg the question, what about in the spiritual realm of existence? Could it be that the Spirit also has a role to play in it that seemingly is very similar? Let us see. Beginning in this spiritual creation discussion, might I direct your attention, first of all, to the life of our Savior Himself? Did the Holy Spirit have a role to play in the character first of Christ and later of the capability of each person to become a Christian? If so, I believe we could conclude that he would have then a role of not only beautification, but creation as it relates to the spiritual aspect of life. Let's first notice the life of Christ himself. In what way did the Lord come into this world? We might remember in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and following, the angel in fact told Joseph, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. That is to say, it was the Holy Spirit responsible for the conception of Mary. She, in fact, in bringing the Christ child into the world, became pregnant, if you please, by the conceptive capability and power of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Spirit had a role to play in bringing Jesus into this world. But not only that. On the occasion of his baptism, recorded in Matthew 3, verses 15 and following, on that occasion when our Savior submitted to John the Baptist in the act of baptism, 
Might we recall so eloquently and beautifully that the Spirit of God descended on him like as of a dove and dwelt upon him. On that occasion, Jesus, you see, received that interesting aspect of and character of the Holy Spirit. And John 3.34 reminds us he did not have that without that, that was to say in a limited fashion. It was without measure. That Holy Spirit thus resided with the Savior throughout his life. So much so that it could even be said that when he went to the cross, was the Holy Spirit thus active and alive in him giving his life for my sins and yours? Perhaps Hebrews 9.14 will shed some light upon that conclusion. There the Hebrew writer by inspiration made this observation about the sacrificial death of our Savior. He put it in words like this. As he spoke about Jesus, he said, again, Hebrews 9, verse number 14, that he offered himself without spot through the eternal spirit, through the eternal spirit, through the spirit of God. When the Lord offered himself at Calvary, he did so by virtue of the leading cause, the leading, in fact, directive of the Holy Spirit. As that Spirit had shed forth the will of God, the plan of salvation, the character of all that was housed in the Scriptures, that led our Savior to Calvary. And when He gave His life, He did so under the leading influence of the Holy Spirit. Later, after He had, of course, been buried, what about His resurrection? Did the Spirit have a role to play also in God again resurrecting our Savior? Romans 8 verse 11 says that He did. In Romans 8, 11, we have by inspired penmanship, Paul referring to the following act, that it was in his resurrection bringing him back to life that the Spirit was active and alive, and in so doing has a role to play in the spiritual recreation of you and me as well. So far, we've seen thus the Spirit active and alive in many aspects of our Savior. I suppose the question then comes, what about you and me? In terms of the spiritual life that God wishes us to enjoy, does the Spirit have a role in creating that life, making it happen, bringing it to pass? I've listed some passages for us to consider in that regard. In regard to spiritual renewal of life, Titus 3 verse 5 has these words to say. When Paul wrote to his young son in the faith, Titus, he made reference to the fact that not by works of righteousness which we have done, that is to say, you and I can't claim to merit the goodness of heaven. We can't claim to merit the character of forgiveness of sins. We do not deserve it by our own efforts. But he did say that not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy. Mercy? Notice what that mercy produces. Again, Titus 3, verse number 5. There's the renewing of the Holy Spirit and the regeneration made possible by virtue of that Holy Spirit. Notice the renewing of the Holy Spirit. There is a renewal in spiritual creation and the Holy Spirit has a role to play in bringing that about. That text perhaps is amplified when we recall the newness described in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. When an individual turns his life over to the Savior in humble and powerful obedience to the commandments that God has given, there is gen genuinely a renewal. That old man of sin is put away. 
And that's the very text before us. Behold, all things are become new. You and I can experience being a new creature in Christ. That newness comes by virtue of the powerful spiritual creation available through the Holy Spirit. That spiritual creation may be affirmed in the clearness of the words of Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That's a text no doubt many of us have often reflected upon. Here was a Jewish leader who by night came to Jesus and in fact said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a man from God, for no man can do these things that thou doest except God be with him. After following that statement and that remark, Jesus responded. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Lord stated an absolute exclusiveness to this fact. If one does not experience rebirth, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was confused. And thus he said, Is it possible for a man to enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? The Lord thus explained in verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The Lord's explanation involved this, that rebirth to which he referred in verse 3. He explained as being born of water and of the Spirit in verse 5. That's a capital S. It is the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Holy Spirit has a critical and crucial role to play in a person being able to ultimately enter heaven by virtue of being reborn, born spiritually into the family of God. We mustn't thus overlook the important work and role of the Holy Spirit in that regard, not only in physical creation, but in spiritual creation as well. In the aspect of that spiritual creation, could we not conclude then that the Holy Spirit is active in the beautification of and the sustenance of this physical universe, but in the spiritual fashion, He is the very entity, the person, the divine individual, that is a critical element in spiritual rebirth, coming to the Savior, coming to appreciate that pathway that leads to life everlasting. With that aspect, one, I suppose, can only then ask, how does the Spirit do that? How does He physically and carefully create in a spiritual way? Does the Bible tell us? Let's use the second part of our lesson this morning to answer that question. How does the Spirit then create in a spiritual way? How can you and I become those that are reborn by virtue of the nature of the Holy Spirit's power and efficacy to be the kind of person that God would have us to be? That's the second work to which we'll turn our attention this morning. The Holy Spirit's work in revealing God's will. You and I know well that God's thoughts are far higher than ours. His ways are far higher than ours, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. We can't by our own nature think on His level. We can't operate on His level, for He is infinite. But, thankfully, He has revealed, in one way or another, things that you and I need to know and things to which we must respond if we are to be pleasing in His sight. Let's begin thus and ask, how did God reveal and how does He reveal his will to you and me. Might I submit to you the Holy Spirit is the critical element in making that happen. 
It is the Spirit that brings the revelation of heaven to you and me and presents it to us so that we can appropriately respond to it as the commandments and as the statements are made available to us. Now, let's look carefully at some examples first to make certain that we see the way in which that's presented. First, in the Old Testament, as we look at various characters in the Old Testament, those who often did great things on behalf of the cause of God, notice that we can begin to consider Bezalel as one example. Here, the children of Israel had exited from captivity in Egypt. As they moved on that way toward the promised land, God gave instruction relative to a tabernacle. This was a movable, portable place of worship, but God gave specific instruction relative to how it was to be constructed. The furniture within it, the things of which it was to be comprised. Here's where the role of Bezalel enters. Bezalel was a craftsman who was the one overseeing the construction of the furniture pieces and the other elements that went with that tabernacle. How did Bezalel construct those things correctly? How did he, in fact, by the mere workmanship of humanity, be able to make it the way that God desired and commanded it to be? May I submit that Exodus 35.30 is the answer. There it says the Holy Spirit came on Bezalel. Here he was empowered by that Spirit, and as a conclusion and result thereof, he was able to make and fashion those pieces in accordance to the command and the will of God. But consider one of the judges, namely the judge known as Gideon in Judges chapters 6 and 7. On that occasion, Gideon, the very one who was about to fight the Midianites, the Holy Spirit, we're told, came upon Gideon and empowered him with a proper military strategy so that God's people would be successful. Not many chapters later, the similar conclusion is true of Jephthah. He was fighting the Ammonites, and as that battle began to ensue, the Spirit came upon Jephthah and empowered him with knowledge and direction, enabling him to be successful in that military conflict against the Ammonites. Those are but three rather brief examples, admittedly. But perhaps David's will also set the tone for what is to follow. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, David, we find at the occasion of his anointing by Samuel, was an individual upon whom the Spirit dwelt, and as such, he would thus be a strong defender for the cause of God. He finally would, of course, be the king of Israel for a total of 40 years. This man, David, would later himself say in 2 Samuel 23, 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. David knew well the Spirit was speaking through him. And as he thus gave commandments to the people, it was not his own ideas. It was God, through the Spirit, revealing that thing to him of which he then spoke. We have seen in those examples that the Spirit thus empowered individuals to perform the will of God, empowering them and making them aware of the things that God wished them to know. That, I suppose, leads us then to say, what about the New Testament? Is there anything like that said about the Spirit in the New Testament? Is He still instrumental in bringing God's will to the human family, in making it available to them by way of awareness? The answer is yes. Let's begin in Matthew, the 10th chapter. 
In verse number 20 of that chapter, on the occasion of the limited commission, Jesus sent forth His apostles to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And to them He gave words that they were to preach. In verse number 20, He said, that the Spirit will provide you what to say. What was that now? When they went about preaching the limited commission to that Jewish nationality, Jesus promised them that the Spirit would provide them what they were to say. They were given the words that they were to speak. That, of course, indicates the Spirit revealed or unfolded to them the information from heaven that they were to speak. That sounds very similar to what David had uttered centuries before, that the Spirit made available the things that were to be spoken and said. Let us also notice, though, another example. In John 14, verses 26 and 27, Jesus again, this time shortly before His crucifixion, to the apostles, this time He said again, The Spirit will bring back to your memory all that you've heard Me teach. Thus, they didn't rely upon human forgetfulness and human failure to properly recollect. The Spirit, Jesus said, would bring back to their memory in completeness that which they needed to recall and to teach to others. Two chapters later in John 16, 13, there the Lord again on the occasion of the same night said, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He shall guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but that which he heareth, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. Isn't it amazing that Jesus thus said, He, namely the Spirit, will guide you into all truth. Wouldn't it be sad if our hope of heaven rested on the failures, the speculation, and the opinion of humankind? I'd submit to you the brightest scholar that's ever lived still is a failure in regard to knowing the thoughts of God unless God revealed it. We can't think on God's level. We are far beneath Him. He's infinite in love and might and justice and power. Jesus told those apostles that when they preached the Word and the record is given in the book of Acts, it wasn't their opinions. He will guide you into all truth. Thus, when Peter stood up on Pentecost and preached that gospel sermon, the Holy Spirit was guiding the words he spoke. And when he offered the invitation and thus set down God's plan of salvation, the Holy Spirit's what revealed that. It wasn't Peter's idea. It wasn't John's idea, Paul's idea, Andrew's idea. It was the Holy Spirit's revelation. And so it is that when we appreciate the power of those statements, perhaps no text summarizes that any better than the text found much later in the New Testament in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. On that occasion, the inspired apostle Peter said this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In what way thus did Peter describe the matter before us? He first made note that even those Old Testament prophecies, they weren't merely human thinking. It was not the brightest thought to the prophets of that day. There was something far grander behind it. Those prophets spoke the character of the will of God, and they did so by the leading influence of the Holy Spirit. 
when we thus see that the Holy Scriptures to which we so often turn for guidance, for direction, for comfort, and all other things significant and vital in life, it was the Holy Spirit that penned this book. We often attribute it to 40 writers over roughly 1,600 years. And it's true that the pencil was in their hand. But who was providing the thoughts and the words that they wrote? It was the Holy Spirit. Let's note again the wording in verse 21. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word has the following connotation and idea behind it. It's very much like a vessel on a very still body of water. The Greek word, again, with the idea behind it is this. It is the wind that directs the sail and leads the boat to where it ultimately has as its destination. That's the same idea here. The Holy Spirit superintended and led those writers to write what they wrote. Thus, when you and I open the Scriptures today, is God still thus through the Spirit providing us the vital information and the revelation of His will? We still have it right here. Thus, the Spirit, in a way has told us, by virtue of having it penned and written, the conclusion and fullness of God's will. That's a wonderful blessing, isn't it? We don't have to rely upon visions and psychics and dreams and other things. We have all of God's revelation right here. In fact, we're told in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, that according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Hence, how much of God's needed will for us has been revealed. Peter said all of it. All of it that pertains to life and godliness is found within the pages of God's inspired book. The Spirit has done His job well, hasn't He? All things that pertain to life and godliness are in this book. With that appreciation and character, perhaps we can notice interestingly just a few concluding thoughts and then the lesson will be yours for this morning. Among the things that could well be said, the Bible on many occasions attributes directly the Scriptures to the Holy Spirit Himself. We've already noted that text in 2 Peter 1, but could I quickly point out a few others, such as Mark 12, 36, and such as Acts 1, beginning in verse number 16. On those two occasions, inspired New Testament individuals quoted from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, quoted from that book, and said that the Holy Spirit wrote it. Now, it was, in fact, a book that David penned, but notice on two different occasions in the New Testament, it's attributed to the Holy Spirit. Thus, when we read the book of Psalms or any other of the 66 books of the Bible, we are reading that which literally the Holy Spirit wrote. Not only that text. In Isaiah 61, beginning in verse number 1, we find a very compelling Old Testament passage, and it's one that's quoted verbatim by Jesus in Luke 4. Jesus, however, made statement of the fact the Spirit was what revealed that word. Thus, whether it be the prophecies of the Old Testament, the epistles of the New Testament, it matters not. The Holy Spirit is the entity, the person that in fact revealed it. 
one who considered the prophecies of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 11 verse 5, where again it is there said to be a result of the Holy Spirit. Or in fact, one could even consider 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13. When we make recollection of the fact that I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath been made known to man the glories that are revealed and that are in, in waiting for him. There's one interesting conclusion, though, about that. And it comes in verse 13 of that same chapter when it says, The Holy Ghost teacheth. The Holy Ghost does teach. The Spirit teaches, and here is his textbook. This is the book by which he teaches and makes known the things of the human family, the things that men must know and must obey if they are to be spiritually created after the way that God would have them be. Perhaps these things have led us to say that we can conclude our lesson by very briefly highlighting these things we've seen. First, the Holy Spirit's activity in creation physically. It beautified. It organized. It turned that which was formless into that which was beautiful. Similarly, in the spiritual realm, the Holy Ghost's work in creation involves making that which was not there before. A person lost in sin can become a new creature in Christ under the leading influence of that which the Holy Spirit has provided. That led us to the second part of our lesson, namely the Spirit's role in revealing God's will to the human family. He did it to Bezalel. He did it to David. He did it to Jephthah and others. And we also notice that he does it to us. He reveals God's will for us. Today, then, might we ask, are you an individual who's following the leading influence of the Holy Spirit? Not as though now that as we have already learned that He appears by some small, still voice, for He doesn't. His influence is found in this, in this book, this production. Are you following it? Have you given your life over to compliance with it? Do you live in accordance to it? The first matter would then be, have you become a Christian? Are you an individual? who in fact has been spiritually created. If not, you're lost in sin, friend. You have not yet availed yourself of the blessed sacrifice of the Son of God. You haven't yet come into covenant relationship with God. Jesus sent His Son to die for you. His Son shed His blood for you. He was resurrected to life that you too might one day be resurrected to live with Him forever. Don't neglect that gift. Don't neglect that sacrifice. Don't rebel against it. Openly give your life in humble submission to the commandments. You're told that you must hear the word of the Lord. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, Acts 2, 38. You must confess Jesus' name as the Son of God, as enunciated in Romans 10, verse 10. And you must be baptized for the remission of sins. That's stated again in Acts 2, 38. If we could help you today accomplish that and make that real in your life, you could be spiritually created as you come forth from that watery grave of baptism. If you've come, become a Christian at one point in life, but you have slipped away from the faith, you've allowed the devil far too much leeway in your life, you need to come back to your first love per the command of Revelation 2.5. You need to pray earnestly that God will forgive you of those sins, and if they have been public... We need to pray with you, and we'd be happy to do it. Today, if you need to respond publicly to, the God, to God's call of invitation, let the Spirit lead 
by you following his word. And if we could help you do that, let it be known, please, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.